This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. All right, Carol, my first thought, literally my first thought when all this news broke was, I need to know what Ian King thinks about all of this. And it really has reverberated, as you mentioned at the top of the show, across the entire semiconductor industry uh, and beyond this agreement between Apple and Qualcomm to basically stand down. So what does it mean and what does Ian King think about it? We're going to pose that to him. He's in our Bloomberg 960 studio. In San Francisco. He wasn't there when I was in San Francisco a couple weeks ago. I was very sad, but at least he's with us now. Hi, Ian. (laughs) Hi, Ian. Hello. Uh, Don't sound so excited to be with us. So what does this all mean? You've been working hard on all the angles. Intel getting a huge boost from this, but let's start with Apple and Qualcomm. What does it mean for them? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the bottom line here is that if Apple thought it could win, if Apple had another supplier for this crucial part for 5G, the, the lawsuits would still be going on. We'd still be talking about that. What seems to have happened is uh, Apple took a, a look at its options, took a look at what Intel was going to give it and said, this just isn't going to go. This isn't going to work. We've got to go back to Qualcomm. Uh, let's all be friends. I love this. And it's it's a case of kind of the giant bowing to and Qualcomm's nothing to sneeze at, right? It's a it's a big company and it's a big chip supplier, but just realizing, okay, we're gonna need to work together in order to make sure that Apple's got a presence in five G. It really it really boiled down to that. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean the irony is throughout the whole process and we're looking at two years of, of suits of, of testimony and everything yeah. apple has poured scorn on the idea that the modem is anything other than just another part of the phone and now quite clearly they're saying well actually no this is quite important and we need qualcomm's technology and so tell us about how this did indeed ripple through i mean especially intel i, I mean the whole socks is moving up but intel especially really getting a huge boost here right Right, exactly. I mean, you, you remember back, you know, decades ago when you had a real job, Jason, and you also covered the chip industry. <laughs> vaguely, was, I, vaguely. Geez. I just remember learning everything I know from you. Ian, well, you've become it, kind of my favorite person now. <laughs> wow. Intel in those days was struggling against companies like Texas Instruments, trying to get into the, the mobile phone industry and, and really spending a lot of money and not making a lot of progress. Fast forward to 2019, Really, not a lot has changed. They have Apple as as their major customer, but really, you know, there's still a lot of losses. They hide those losses now, but still a lot of losses. They have a CFO now, a former CFO as their CEO. He looks at the situation. We've just lost our only customer. Um, We're losing money anyway. Enough's enough. That's the end of it. And guess what? Investors like that. I find it fascinating. I feel like it's companies, you know, companies and executives, especially when they're fighting against one another, they can be kind of like kids in a sandbox and they're not reasonable. But I feel like it's Intel saying, all right, we need to not do this 5G thing. I feel like it's Apple saying, we need to be in 5G and Qualcomm, we need you. Like, this is the way you're supposed to act. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of the ironies is like the the, the the bitterness of the lawsuits, the things that the lawyers say in court, yeah. the things that leak. 
disappear in a second and and you you could almost put money on on maybe somebody from Qualcomm putting in an appearance at an Apple lunch and being patted on the head for for having a great part you know that, that's the way the world works can I, can I ask you though explain something to me explain something Lucy as they would say uh, and I love Lucy but tell me Ian what it means for Intel to say we're not going to do 5G this is an important part of their future business I mean we talk so much about the importance of 5G going forward in the interconnectivity of devices does not Intel have to be in 5G yeah I mean that's a very good question I mean there there are 1.4 billion smartphones sold a year Intel has said we're not going to be in them on the flip side of that, it has said, though, that what 5G will bring is an explosion in infrastructure, that you're going to see way more of what we think of as traditional cellular services and the infrastructure actually done in the cloud. Those are data centers which are based upon Intel server processes. What Intel is now saying is, look, we're going to pour more of our resources, more of our energy into that, and guess what? We're going to profit from it anyway. Hmm. And so Apple's winning here, at least from investors' perspective. Qualcomm, a big winner from investors' perspective. We talked about Intel being a big winner. Who's losing here? Somebody's got to be losing, Ian. Well, you know, no matter how you you slice and dice it, Intel is giving up on yeah. a 1.4 billion device market. There's the, you know, the mobile market is bigger in terms of the amount of silicon, the amount of devices, the amount of everything than computers are. So Intel is effectively comp- confining itself to computers now. So yes, they're not wasting as much money as they were, and that's good. And yes, they're putting resources into other things, but they're also giving up on opportunities. Well, and as you say, going back low those many years ago when you and I were doing this together, this is a very far cry from where they were positioning themselves, you know, a decade or more ago. Uh, Even more recently than that, Jason, they were saying, look, our technology is pervasive in computing. It's the fundamentals of of computing. If smartphones are more like computers, then guess what? Things are coming to us and... Unfortunately, that hasn't well, happened. And Texas Instruments has has made some similar decisions, right? Keep me honest here. Yeah, Texas Instruments, Broadcom, Nokia, Marvell, all of these companies tried to get into this market, were, in fact, major presences in the market at one point. But, you know, the water just got too hot and Qualcomm was the winner. So when's the next Qualcomm Apple lawsuit begin? <laughs> well, you know that's how question. it goes. <laughs> Basically... Our understanding, we've put this in stories, is that Apple is working on its own modem. Uh, If it can get there, if it can break that dependence, if it can go it alone, then why wouldn't it take on Qualcomm? Why wouldn't it stop paying licensing fees again? We're friends until we're not friends. We're always friends with Ian King, though. He is U.S. Semiconductor and Networking Reporter for Bloomberg, the expert joining us from our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. What a fascinating story. I mean, it's amazing to see how much clients and customers and readers are really glomming onto this so as well. Just a reminder, things are moving so quickly yeah. in technology that you can't keep these legal battles going on. You've got to make decisions and move on. Who is this? Paul Brennan. Aerosmith. Sick as a dog. Well, it's definitely the perfect song to describe what's going on among the health insurance stocks. They're definitely in a free fall. We've seen this before during the dark days of the financial crisis. Let's get into it with Tatiana Derrière. She is healthcare stocks reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. You know, we have been talking, uh, Tatiana, a lot about what's going on in this sector. And then really the concern is Medicare for all, right? 
and yes. not your private insurance companies or private health care coverage anymore. Exactly. And this has really worsened sentiment uh, on this sector, you know, widely. And today we're seeing, uh, you know, this weakness across the board. So it appears that this route that really was localized in managed care at the beginning spread to uh, hospital stocks yesterday. But today we're seeing it spreading to med tech, uh, biotech, and also pharmaceuticals. We've seen uh, moves there that, you know, were beyond three standard deviations for like companies like Merck and Pfizer. Those are big, well, big statistically moves. Statistically speaking, that's a pretty big move when you're talking that's about a pre- three yeah, standard over deviations. The, over the past yeah. 30 days. So those are big moves that tells you that uh, investors are just trying to, you know, to just maintain whatever profits or right. whatever return they got year to date and get out. As you talk to analysts and investors, are they surprised by the the depth and the breadth of this move? Absolutely. You know, investors that we talk to on background, not a lot of them want to be on the record. They're saying that, you know, this is uh, irrational, irrational selling, selling, irrational panic. Wall Street, I think, is absolutely stunned when it comes to the analysts. Uh, at the beginning, you know, they were shrugging off the concerns, saying, hey, just buy whatever dip you have. But right now they've started capitulating, actually, and they're oh, really? cutting their price targets on United Health by on average, we saw a cut of $14 on average on United Health, and that's a lot of money. What makes me this fascinating is I do wonder, like, what would Warren Buffett say about this, right? Like, you <laughs> know, when everybody's running scared, or what would the value guys say who have, ha- have had such a tough time in this market? Because, you know, depending on what happens, you still, we're all going to need health care, health insurance specifically, correct? Exactly. And if you look at health insurance stocks, you know, if you look at the S&P 500 managed care uh, index, they've had a great run. I was just looking and double checking the numbers and over the past decade this index is up 600% still more up more than 600%. Well because and both of you keep me honest here I mean isn't healthcare generally thought of as sort of a defensive sector you know a place where people go to feel safe Exactly. Well, uh, right now, all investors can think about is the election, apparently. And I don't know if this is one corner of the market trying to send a a message about the elections here or is just, you know, broadly that people or investors uh, understand that there needs to be a change uh, when it comes to healthcare in this country, that the status quo cannot continue. And uh, it doesn't matter if it's going to be, you know, a Republican or Democratic uh, president, uh, some changes uh, or voters are expecting change. And, you know, we, we saw this with the mid terms, right? Healthcare was the top priority right. on voters' minds. And then we saw Democrats uh, gaining back the House. So this issue is just not going to go away. It's just tricky, right? It, I guess it really digs to the question or gets into the question of whether, yeah, we still need, you know, um, hospitals, we still need uh, medical device companies, but if they're not going to be reimbursed as much as they were, then yes. maybe they're just not as profitable as they used to exactly. be. Exactly. And it comes down, you know, or to do you govern- make it up by volume? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It comes down, you know, to government interferes and government regulation that investors are fearing because, you know, there are a lot of Medicare for all plans out there. There's even options for people to buy into this program, which would actually benefit this insurers, right? Because Medicare Advantage, which is uh, the the private version of the Medicare plans, uh, have actually has been very lucrative for this insurers. This is the one big area of growth right now. Mm -hmm. So that will work out for them. But when, you know, when people see regulation and government negotiations, negotiating prices, they just get scared away. And I, uh, I'll i post it. I, I'll, I'll send it to you guys so you can repost it on Twitter. There's actually a great chart summarizing all these proposals. And the last column there just shows that uh, everything that they agree on is that gov- the government will regulate and right. negotiate these prices. Well, and it is a reminder, and you said this at the top, Tatiana, that 
all of these companies are so interconnected. And so that's why it feels like this contagion has spread so quickly beyond just the managed care companies. And as you said, uh, to med tech and, and elsewhere. Exactly. And it's been interesting that we've uh, seen the, this companies actually be very quiet about it. Even the industry groups like the doctors associations, the medical devices people, everyone's pretty quiet. And I think well, the, nobody wants to be a target. Okay. Exactly. Because uh, with United Health, what we saw yesterday, they, you know, they, they, tried to address it. They said, oh, this is going to be a big disruption and actually backfired because it freaked people out. Uh, just how they described that the yeah. industry is going to be so disruptive. Just the words they used. Amazing. Amazing. It's amazing to see the momentum though, right? Because, and I think about it, it's so tough for Washington to get something done, but we do know that this has been a priority yeah. for the president uh, and he wants to get to 2020 saying, look at what I did in terms of changing um, healthcare and insurance. Tatiana, thank you so much. Tatiana Daria, she is healthcare stocks reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. We'll talk more about those uh, names and our movers and shakers a little bit later on. We will indeed. Always good to catch up with Tatiana. The pride of Mizzou Journalism School, right? <laughs> Loomis Award winner. Always like to have her so uh, cool. in here. Ain't nothing like the real thing, baby. Ain't All right. Like I love talking about real estate. Me too. And it's so interesting because there's always data uh, coming out. And I spotted this on the Bloomberg, a story by Scott Landman saying applications for loans to buy U.S. homes rose to the highest level in almost nine years, uh, adding to signs that the Fed's pause in interest rates supporting the housing sector. Let's talk about housing. Let's talk mm-hmm. about real estate in general. Calvin Schnur is with us. He's an economist at Nayreet. Am I saying that right? That's uh, right. It's based Nayreet. down in Washington, D.C. Here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio today. So real estate, we watch it so closely because it's such a great economic indicator. How's the real estate market going? Let's talk commercial first. Well, the commercial real estate market is, is doing pretty well. Uh, there are strong fundamentals in the overall macroeconomy. We're having good job growth. The U.S. economy is slowing a bit over the next year uh, from last year's pace, but we've expected that. Uh, the, the 2017 tax cuts boosted growth a little bit last year. We're slowing back to a trend pace, which is good for the outlook. Now, for the commercial real estate market, the most important thing is that the demand for leased space just keeps on growing. Uh, There's a lot of demand for office space, for apartments, for industrial space, for Mm -hmm. many of the other sectors. And the reason that's important is there's a fair amount of construction going on. Uh, but the construction, the new supply, is, is, is just enough to keep pace with the demand. Well, that's what I was going to ask you, because I feel like for such a long time coming off the financial crisis, it was like everybody stopped their projects, right? Or to some extent, there was a slowdown. And then it took a while for the momentum to get up going again, because these are long-term projects, right? You've got to make a commitment. It takes a while to get it all done. But you have to feel optimistic enough about not just today or a year from now, but a few years from now, that the investment makes sense. So we're now at that point and we're going to continue building. We've kind of we still have enough demand to kind of keep that building going. That's right. Uh, this is one of the cases where a slow but steady wins the race. We had a very slow start after the after the great financial crisis, and it took quite a while for projects to come online. But even now, several years into the recovery, you haven't seen just the surge of construction that has led to overbuilding in past cycles. One of the biggest factors much cause, in much more cautious building. Much more cautious building. There's fairly good underwriting. There are projects that have penciled out with demand. One of the biggest causes of a real estate downturn is overbuilding. And right now, we're seeing good building, but not overbuilding. And so talk to us about the REIT market, because that is obviously a way that 
everyday investors uh, really get into the real estate market beyond investing in their homes or uh, in commercial real estate if they have the ability to do that? What's the REIT picture look like? Well, the REIT picture actually has improved quite a bit this past year. Uh, for the past couple of years, investor fears about interest rates were weighing on REIT share prices. And that REIT held the REIT sector back in investment terms uh, for, for, for quite a while. But that was in contrast to their operating performance. REIT earnings have continued to rise in the high single digits to low double digits for the past several years. So mm-hmm. what that means is the stock prices really have not kept pace with how much they're earning. And when you uh, sort of dig into the research, are there regions of the country? Are there sort of pockets where it's growing especially fast or not growing as fast? There are some areas that are doing quite well. Uh, most of the West Coast is doing quite well. Yeah. A lot of the, the the eastern seaboard is doing well. Uh, there are many other parts of the country that are, that are not doing as well. But overall... Uh, the REIT sector is on pretty solid ground. So I am curious about where the building is happening. Is it, is it true that it continues to be everybody just wants to be in the major cities? Um, or are we also seeing, I don't know, you know, I know there's warehousing that's going on that's certainly outside the cities because it's cheaper to build, especially for all that online commerce and so on and so forth. So what are we seeing in terms of trends A lot of that depends lines? on the type of property that they're building. Yeah. Um, and apartments, actually, most of them are not in the central part of the city, but in the inner suburbs and, and the outer suburbs. Uh, some of the more important differences are regionally, that some of the cities like Seattle, Denver, uh, Dallas, Fort Worth, Austin, that have very rapid population growth are seeing you know, heavy construction as well. I see a lot of analysts worried about the level of construction in mm-hmm. cities like uh, Seattle, or Dallas, Seattle or Denver. Uh, but the fact is they have people moving there. They need the space. They need the apartments. They need the office. So it, it, that's a well-balanced situation as well. And what about, you know, I was in San Francisco just a couple weeks ago, and you see a lot of building there. But you also see really up close and personal this, like, income inequality, the sort of lack of affordable housing in a, in a, a place like that. How are you seeing this sort of mix play out, especially in these faster growing cities in terms of affordable housing versus the really high-end, high-priced stuff? Well, the fact is we haven't really recovered from the housing crisis. It's shifted. Hmm. We had an overbuilding crisis, a foreclosure crisis, a mortgage credit crisis, but then we basically stopped building uh, homes and apartments to the extent you need for a growing population. Right now, there's a shortfall of housing in most cities, and that's what's causing the affordability problems. That means that rents are high, prices are high. So I wouldn't say it's a distribution effect as much as everyone is facing high costs for housing. A supply, so it's a supply issue. That's exactly right. There's a shortage of supply. But, but they're nervous because they don't want to overbuild because they don't want to see the overbuilding that we saw in the crisis. That's right. And also, there are some other constraints. Uh, it's, it's difficult to get skilled labor it's still, and unskilled labor. A lot right. of the workers are no longer in the industry or even no longer in the country. There are some shortages of supply. Uh, there's a fair amount of credit going into the industry, but many of the companies that were building homes and apartments uh, 10, 15, 12 years ago have, have, have left the industry. So we just don't have the supply. What about the interest rate environment? And how much, if we get another, you know, we start to move higher, how much of an impact will it have? Certainly, that's something we look at when we're looking at REITs specifically. Well, interest rates have gone from very, very low to very low, and now they're stuck at low. (laughs) So I'm really not concerned about interest rates. If you took anyone who's worked in this market for the past 
30 or 40 years, they would think this is just an ideal financial condition. This is ideal financing. And th this holds for the macro economy as well. I see a lot of concerns about a flat yield curve or an inverting yield curve. The reason why a yield curve inversion is a warning sign is if it inverts because the Fed is jacking up short-term rates because they're worried about inflation. Right. That's not no, the case not. today. Right. This is a good interest rate environment. All right, got to leave it on that note. Calvin, thank you so much. Calvin Chenor, he's the economist at NAREIT, National Association of Real Estate Investment Trusts. REITs, by the way, are up 13% this year. They've rallied about 17% since December 24. Carol Master, Jason Kelly, right here on Bloomberg. Everybody's got a theme song, and that includes the Girl Scouts. Um, Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, Boy Scouts, now known as Scouts, and of course, Girl Scouts, each more than a century old, each evolving and figuring out how to be in a 21st century world. Uh, Claire said a story. It is one of this week's features in the magazine. She joins us along with Jill Weber, Bloomberg Business Week editor, both in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Jill, I got to start with you because I'm just thinking, all right, so Claire comes to you and says, Jill, I want to do a story on, Girls, on Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, and you say what? Uh, what's your favorite cookie? <laughs> Samoa's. Samoa, yeah. <laughs> no, that's that's a good one. Oh, that's yeah. second place. So he, wasn't, he wasn't asking time. you. He was, he was actually <laughs> answering I mean, the question. You're like, Samoa's. That's, that's how I feel about this story is like you, you, you we start talking about scouts in general. And we, we will spend a little talk, time talking about scouts. But if you talk about Girl Scouts, and we're still in the middle of cookie season. Um, this is big business. And, and there's this greater controversy that Claire started to tease out a little bit. And whenever you have cookies and a fight over cookies and brands and what the nature of Scouts is, it just leads to magical places. And that's what Claire was able to do. So tell us about your story. Well, you may have heard that this year the Boy Scouts officially let in girls for the first time for their their original 109-year-old program. And that would then make them Girl Scouts, which the Girl Scouts don't like because they have that trademarked. Right. So now you have a lawsuit where the Girl Scouts are suing the Boy Scouts. And so the article is basically the story of these 100-year-old institutions, where they got to you know, where they are now and where they're going in the future, which is to court. Right. And one of the things that has gotten us to this point is that the Girl Scouts, largely fueled by that cookie business, have done exceedingly well as an organization, especially financially. The Boy Scouts, not so much. How did they diverge like this? Yeah, well, it's funny because they both started um, by this like British lieutenant general in 1908. He started um, Boy Scouting in the UK, and then it came over to the US a couple of years later, and a couple of years after that, you get the Girl Scouts in the US. So they have the same origin story, but the Boy Scouts have always been sort of focused on, you know, preparing boys to be young men. Uh, originally, it was like to prepare them for military duty, camping, outdoors activities, survivalist techniques, that sort of thing. And Girl Scouts have that. But they very quickly moved to other sorts of activities and started funding everything through cookies, which turned out to be huge business. Today, how, how big of a business? Today, they are the second largest cookie seller in the U.S. after only Oreo. Which is wild. And it brings in... Do we, do we have any kind of idea? Yes. Yeah, so I know they, it's hard to get they an exact figure. They won't say. Um, the, the figure that gets bandied about a lot is $700 million a year, but it's also 20 years old. And every... Girl that Scout, wow. yeah. So every Girl Scout that I've talked to has said um, if she's been in the program long enough, within the past like five years or so, everything has moved online. They have an app, so you can just 
download the cookie app, find your nearest Girl Scout who's actively selling cookies and just like run down the street and get cookies. So they <laughs> are selling way more than they used to. I am so into that. <laughs> yeah. It, it, so what, what we kind of got into in the story, Claire, with your reporting is the identity question of like you end up with these two brands that are kind of doing the same thing, but for basically two different sexes or genders. And now there's this brand confusion. How do you think this lawsuit's going to uh, play out? Well, when you read the complaint, you see that essentially what has happened is, you know, you have all of these like local troops and local councils that now have to put out flyers advertising for these new troops that are going to have girls in them. And some of those flyers say Girl Scouts on them. And it's quite confusing. And I talked to a number of people who said that they they had no idea what troop was what and what was happening so I talked to some experts, and they said that they'll probably be able to change to scouts because it's a generic term, and there was this landmark case with um, Nabisco and Kellogg fighting over the term shredded wheat in 1938. And right. Precedent. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they'll probably be able to change to scouts, but um, the issue is going to be over how they phrase it and you know, just avoiding the confusion. Do we think that there could be an M&A opportunity within scouts? Possibly, maybe. Yeah. Jason, you know something about that. If you're if you're in an MA, put an M and A hat on. Yeah, can Girl Scouts take over Scouts? It they've feels got like the money. It. I Thank mean, that's you. the I thing. Like it's how a, you it, did it that way. It's a yeah. leverage buyout, right? Yeah. I mean, they they've got the uh, they've although got cookies. Well, it's a leverage buyout, although really a distressed asset. Uh, yeah. at the end of the day, this is a buyout Scouts. opportunity. Scouts. Yeah, is a distressed Scouts asset. is a distressed asset. Yeah. Uh, Girl Scouts have all the cash flow they need. Yeah. yeah, well, the Boy Scouts are considering bankruptcy, actually, because they have See, there you uh, go. hundreds of lawsuits that they're facing. That's what's fascinating. I think we need to take this to but, some bankers, but, Joel. But that's what's fascinating. <laughs> the Girl Scouts have figured out kind of the model going forward, right, in terms of revenue. And they're also doing programs. It's not just about, you know, baking badges anymore. It's about coding and all the and preparing girls kind of for the future in the workforce. Yeah, the the current CEO of the Girl Scouts um, used to work at NASA, actually, in their jet propulsion labs, and then she worked at Dell, Love Apple, it. IBM, so she's really into STEM. Love this. Um, so Girl Scouts has taken all of this cookie money and created all of these STEM badges and have a lot of STEM programs. They always said women were going to rule the world. It's yeah. it's like literally this is what's happened. Joe, yeah. we kind of already do. We're I, I, mean, I mean, I know. Actually, I know. Yeah, we all this bought is, great yeah. cookies. <laughs> everyone, everyone bow down. And rule this right. show, that's for sure. Joe Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. Claire Suddeth, writer at Bloomberg Business Week. Check out her story. It's in the magazine, hitting newsstands on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I'll turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Paul Eidelman is with us, senior investment strategist at Russell Investments. $261 billion in assets under management. He's joining us on the phone from Seattle. Hey, Paul, nice to have you here uh, once again on Bloomberg Radio. Uh, it's been an interesting week as we you know, kind of get earnings season. We kick it off. We get the big banks. Uh, a little bit of a mixed lot there. Um, I feel like the markets are marking time a little bit uh, as we try to figure out where we go from here and what's the corporate profit outlook 
Well, I, I think the results have been kind of mixed and okay so far. Obviously, still very early days, as you mentioned. Uh, the banks were mixed results. I think our main focus here is on the week ahead where we start to get some of the uh, industrial bellwethers like Caterpillar and we start to get some of the mega cap tech names coming in. And our suspicion, particularly with uh, the Chinese stimulus numbers and growth indications coming through in a more positive direction in March, I think there's some potential for uh, upside surprise here in in the companies and sectors that are most exposed to that global growth dynamic, which was quite weak uh, in, in their the, the early part of the, the first quarter of 2019 and, and appears to be inflecting higher here. And so I think that's going to be a major watch point for us in the week ahead. And so when you try and sort of synthesize everything else that's going on in the world, what jumps to the top of your list? I think really it's it's a reduction in macro risk factors that were evident at the end of 2018. It, it was a period of market slowing in, in the global economy, uh, but there's been a massive policy response here, which is, I think is a really important positive tailwind and really does open the potential for a positive mini cycle here in the global economy. We had uh, a lot of uncertainty around the trade war, and even though we don't have a deal there yet, it looks like there's increasingly optimism from the U.S. and Chinese administrations working towards a deal, uh, potentially in the next uh, month or so. We have China stimulating in a big way because of that slowdown in trade uncertainty last year and, and economic growth rates coming in towards the high end of their six to six and a half percent growth target. And so I think that that stabilization in China is a really important inflection in the global economy. And then you have the Fed, partly because of that global growth weakness, but also because of the inflation softness on hold for the foreseeable future here. And so that's meant a massive easing in financial conditions, lower mortgage rates domestically here in the United States. And I think that's also flowing through in, in terms of a positive catalyst, both from an economic and a market perspective. And so while we've been in this period of, of weakness from a fundamental perspective and, and seeing kind of lackluster earnings growth levels right now for the first quarter of 2019, I think this inflection towards a positive mini cycle has the potential to start to create some positive surprise again, at least uh, very tactically in the near term. Uh, for, for sort of the course of 2019 here. Well, and you do wonder when you've got folks like Larry Fink of BlackRock saying that a lot of investors have yet to embrace the rally. He's talking about the equity markets in, in particular, and he, he gets yep. into hedge funds and he looks at the hedge fund equity or equity hedge fund index and the gains that we've seen and what we've seen historically. And he's just saying that basically their equity exposure is I guess he comes down to the least in six years. So he's looking into things like that uh, and also talks about ETF investors that have poured so much money into bond ETFs versus equity ETFs, you know, over nervousness about the outlook. So I do wonder if you add that on top of it, what it does specifically mean for stocks going forward. Yeah, we're really not seeing those signs of euphoria right now. We also think sentiment's a really important ingredient for tactical asset allocation decisions. And there was, in our view, clear evidence of a market panic around Christmas Eve of last year. Those same sentiment indications today, while they've normalized, aren't really showing any signs of euphoria or overextension in the market. And, and so I think that suggests there is at least some potential for further upside from here. 
We do know, though, that valuations are getting a bit richer because the markets rallied strongly into what are still at least currently somewhat weak earnings. So maybe a little bit less upside potential from a valuation perspective, but we're not seeing that same kind of exuberance or optimism that we saw in September of 2018, for example. And so I think that's an important contrast to keep in mind. And what about real estate? real mm-hmm. assets. You know, we had a guest on earlier who's a REITs guy, and we were talking with him about how the, you know, the REITs have uh, struggled a, a, a little bit. They seem to be coming back a bit, as I think Carol pointed out earlier in the show. How do you factor that into your investment thesis? Uh, we're scaling back our optimism on, on REITs. Um, it, it was an attractive area of the market in, in late 2018, yeah. but with the very significant downshift in interest rates, I think a lot of that positivity and, and upside potential has already played out at this point. Mm. From a, a net, net asset value perspective, for example, we were seeing REITs trading at something like a 15% discount to NAV. That discount's fully closed, and, and right. in our view, REITs are trading at a premium today. We also think the market, uh, even though interest rates have started to creep up a bit here, is probably still a little bit too pessimistic on the fixed income side, thinking about the potential for Fed rate cuts. Uh, and as that starts to get priced out, and in our view, the bond market should get pushed back towards more of a rate hikes view of the world again as we get late in, in 2019, that interest rate sensitivity uh, in REITs is likely to be a headwind as, as well. So uh, probably less upside potential uh, in REITs from here would be our perspective. And I do wonder how you read some of the news um, out of China. Our Vince Signorella shared with me a note, um, and he puts this out on the Bloomberg Terminal at Squawk Go, and this is live breaking news. And he, they were doing some analysis earlier today uh, when it comes to some of the Chinese economic data that we got. And, you know, their take on it, uh, or somebody over at RBC pointing out, saying that, you know, even though we got some upbeat Chinese data uh, overnight, the headline numbers were upbeat, that the faster retail sales growth and a fall in unemployment don't sit with a lot of other evidence of factory shutdowns, collapsing auto sales, sharply slowing import growth. And again, our squawk putting out some research from uh, RBC specifically. So how do you read or feel confident about the reads that we get out of China? It it is a complicated picture. Um, I think what we're observing are some green shoots of positivity in in the cycle in China. Um, I think the industrial production reports, for example, were were positive and sharply stronger than uh, the last 12 months. Uh, We also saw that on top of uh, strong credit numbers, and, and I think supporting the idea that Chinese stimulus is coming through in a bigger way. I think the other thing that gives us some confidence on a more upbeat view about China is it seems to be broadening out. It's not just a China story anymore. Mm-hmm. The whole Asia-Pacific region had been weak on the, the China slowdown, but uh, just in the last uh, couple of weeks or so, we've started to see some stabilization in other very exposed economies, places like Korea and Taiwan, uh, stabilization in, in, in the manufacturing PMIs and, and a few other indications. So I think it's, it's the breadth and a few sort of green shoots in China specifically. We'd love to see more confirming evidence, but we have to try to kind of stay ahead of the market here uh, and look for those, right. those uh, catalysts. Good stuff. Paul Eidelman, Senior Investment Strategist at Russell Investments, looking after $261 billion out in Seattle. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio. 
Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.